Excellent. Heavenly Father, help us again tonight as we work through these passages to get an understanding of what you are teaching us here, that uh, we may grow thereby and we might live thereby according to what you teach us tonight. Thank you, Lord, for a passage like this and for the hope that just lies all the way through it. Uh, We have a great God and one that we long not only to serve but to see, and that day will come. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that we will get to discuss here over and over in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, eschatology is always a famous thing to study. People love it. Conferences on eschatology. We had that up in Warsaw every single year. Winona Lake uh, is the area that we lived in. It was, it was, if you picture a donut, Warsaw, Indiana is a giant outside circle, and Winona Lake is, uh, is the inside circle, like the hole in the middle. And that was like a, a mecca, if you will, years ago. Uh, Billy Sunday's work was there, and Billy Graham had come to town, and the conferences, year after year after year, they'd set up a, a giant uh, tent-like dome that had sawdust and benches in it for guys to come and do evangelistic messages. And it was, it was a place where people flocked every single year to hear prophecy conferences. Even while I was there, the, the dome is gone. It's now a Billy Sunday museum, and the house is up on the hill, and you could go up, you pay enough money, you could go up and look in his house. But uh, uh, they still have a prophecy conference there every year. Grace Seminary sets that up sometimes, but it's with the uh, Friends of Israel group. You, some of you might get their magazine, uh, Israel My Glory, uh, if you've heard of that before, but they, they always love to have their prophecy conference, and I'd go there, and I'd usually get in and sit toward the back of the auditorium, and it was amazing to me how full that place was, and what also was amazing to me was that almost all of them had the same color hair, and I said, what is this all about? Is this only for older folks? I felt, for a while, I felt kind of out of place, so I changed it so that I could go to prophecy conferences. Uh, but uh, the, it's just interesting to me that as we advance in our Christian life, our eyes start to take on a new focus. We start to set them on another place, don't we? A place we call home. And that's what Paul calls it. He says, you're citizens of heaven. And I don't know if you feel that more and more every day, but I'm kind of glad for that title. And reading the news is a little easier when you say, this is not my home, I'm just a passing through, right? When Peter gets to this section of his book, we say, ooh, that's wonderful, eschatology, end times matters, it's important things. But folks, this is not the happy chapter on the end times. As we just read it, there were not a lot of happy verses concerning what is going to happen. It's a picture of judgment, isn't it? Over and over he's talking about judgment, a judgment, and judgment. And he said, why, why did you do this, Peter? You know, these were about the last things ever written by his pen, at least the record we have. This was it. When he finished this letter, no other letter came from him that the Lord preserved. And so this, this was the last thing he wrote that we will ever see. Chapter 1, he told us to be diligent. 
Be diligent. It was right there early in the verse verses, but it was several times over. He said in verse 5, for example, to be diligent. Applying all diligence. In verse number 10, he says, be the more diligent. And he kept calling us to diligence in our Christian walk. And we know that's important. We talked about that and the growth that we are called to have. That's very important. And we don't want to let up on that. Matter of fact, if nothing else, intensify it. Whatever you've ever been in your walk with Christ, in your diligence with the things of Christ, intensify them. That's the way Peter would come across here. Be more, more, more diligent. And then he goes into chapter 2, and that's not an easy chapter. We've been doing that, and we've been comparing that with Jude, and both of them together might have felt like last month was a real downer. I mean, we just went through all those verses together, both morning and evening, and it was like, wow, all these false teacher verses, and they're hard. And yet, what I really loved about chapter 2 was in verse number 9, the fact that the Lord knows. He knows. He knows in this passage, verse 9, two things. Number one, how to rescue the godly. Oh, that's wonderful. He does, doesn't he? Yeah, he's good at it. We have a track record of that all the way through Scripture. But we also... Uh, we'll know that ourselves. How to rescue the godly from temptation. And he also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And there is something also relieving about knowing that. Although nobody likes judgment. But isn't it good to know that the Lord is just? That the things of this world and the false teachers and the mess that they make and the nature of what Satan has done to this land, isn't it good to know that God will hold those folks accountable? That there will be a judgment day? How many times did you see things in the news and you thought, boy, did they get away with that? You know, many times it's politics. We say, how did they get away with that? How did they keep getting away with that? We wonder about those things. God knows. There's something good in that for a believer. There's something good in that, that God knows. And he's going to take care of that. And I'm going to say, in the very end, when it's all said and done, we're going to say, Lord, you did it right. And that's where we're going to conclude it. And so I'm looking forward to seeing the Lord show his glory in those facets too. So we get into chapter 3, and it's like, okay, so... Now it's application time for the believer. We have the facts in front of us and what we're called to do. So what's chapter 3 all about? I call it motivation. It's the motivation to live holy lives. Verse number 11 was read to us just a few minutes ago. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people, what manner of people is the words I heard? What manner of people ought you to be in your holy conduct and in your godliness? If all these things are true, and they are, how should it change the way we live now? See? That's what Peter is discussing in this chapter. How does it change my life right now? Future judgment. Yes. Eschatology, yes. What's the purpose? It's, the, it's to prompt 
right living now. I'll show you. Peter does it here. He talks through these things. We see that in verse number 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what are we to do in our lives? How are we supposed to live them? Go back to 1 Thessalonians just for a minute. Keep your bookmark. 1 Thessalonians, a well-known passage, right? Chapter 4. You know the passage. What's it talking about? The rapture, right? It talks about the rapture. Verse 13 is where we usually pick up. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, yes, look, suddenly it turned into, what do I do now? All right, this is what we're going to do, but what do I do now? Therefore, Right now, encourage one another. Right now, encourage one another. Turn that next chapter, chapter 5. Another well-known section of end times. This time we're describing the tribulation. Not a happy thing, but thankfully we're not here. Chapter 5, 1 through 10, watch this. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourself know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night, we are nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God is not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another. You see how they did that again? Right now, what do we do? Encourage one another. I could take you to other places too. Corinthians does it, chapter 15. We go through the whole story of the resurrection there. Powerful section. Love it very much. But guess what the last couple of verses are? The last verse, 1 Corinthians 15, after talking about death, where is your victory, grave, where is your sting, all these other things, it gets down to this, therefore, last verse, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I could show you this in almost every single passage on eschatology. They always come up with a therefore on what you do now. Because prophecy is not written just for curiosity. And yet that's what most people do. 
They're just curious. Tell us more. Tell us more. The bigger the slides and the more colored, the more impressed they are. Right? And they say, wow, this is the best conference we've ever seen. Because the graphics are so good. They get better all the time. But that's just curiosity. We know these things for a reason, don't we? That's the whole point. Why did the Lord tell us that? He didn't have to, but He did. And He told us that so that we know how to live right now. That's the purpose of eschatology. It's so that we know how to live in the present. We know the promise. Guess who is in charge of keeping the promise? God is. That's His department. The end times is His department. (laughs) But we live today in light of the fact that He's a God who keeps His word. So I can live today. Until then, we just sang that song, didn't we? Yeah. Until then, I can keep on singing, right? Because we know that day will come. I'm just starting your, your, your motor with this here in first or second Peter chapter 3 because he's going into eschatology and some of it's pretty and some of it's not pretty but we walk through it with the confidence that what God is telling us here is something that applies to our life right now this day and tomorrow while we're on this planet we got to know that like he said in verse 11 here in second Peter 3 Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Honestly, eschatology is not complete unless it makes application today. Because that's what it's designed for. That's what God did. So, remember, when we were talking last week, Peter is using a particular technique to help us with this, and it's called repetition. We looked at it, verse 1 and 2, last time. This is now, beloved, the second time I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, so that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of our Lord and Savior, spoken by your apostles. He goes into that and says, I'm going to keep stirring your mind, stirring your mind, stirring your mind, putting it in your mind, putting it in there, putting it in there, so that you don't forget. Very similar to what we've seen in Jude too, isn't it? I think we need that. So when you get to verse 3, guess what he brings up? False teacher kind of guys again. He said, oh no, here we go again. Yes, Peter, why are you doing this? Because he's a repetitious kind of guy. He knows that this point has to keep being made. And notice how he switched it, not from what was in the churches, but what's in the future too. We would love to say that after Peter wrote this, and after Jude wrote his, and after Paul wrote his passages on false teachers, it solved the problem. Wouldn't that be great? No more there. It's kind of like, we found cockroaches, let's go spray them and they're dead. That would be great. But Peter's launching us into the end times, and guess who's still on the page? False teachers? Do they ever go away? There's a reason for this. 
That's why the church has to be always vigilant, because this problem will not go away. Even in the way it says in verse number 3, understand this, this is prophetic. This is not maybe they might come, but they will come. God guarantees it in his word. And you may say, I don't like that guarantee. Nobody does. But nevertheless, God said it will happen in the last days. What's happening in our day is not a surprise to God. Okay? The new weird ways people talk, and you've seen them in the papers and everything else. You've heard about these kind of things, and you say, what is going on around here? Does God even see what's happening? Oh, yes. And yet, he didn't break out in a sweat. It's prophesied. Isn't that awesome just to think through for a second? We have a God who is so sovereign that even prophesying negative things, he's still in control of. That's pretty cool. I like that. So, here's Peter saying, here we go again. Let's talk about mockers. He said, I've had enough of the mockers. No, he's repetitious. Let's talk about the mockers. Let's talk about these mockers. Uh, In this context, they are coming. In the last days, mockers will come. They will come. All of this is in application, so let's keep it in mind. He's repeating it because he's teaching us to help us remember, remember, remember. Peter's not here today, but his letter is. Peter says, I'm going to keep on saying this until you never forget it. And it's working. We're still talking about it. He's reminding us that even today it's still true. Verse 1 through 3 in this passage is one sentence in the Greek language. What he is reminding you of is something you ought to have already known. Mockers are coming. Alright? It's very good to know that. Because that's the only way we're ever going to be prepared for it, is if we know it's coming. And God says it's coming. Know this first of all. Okay, let's walk through it. Verse number three. Know this first of all. Know this. I I like the way he says this. Know this. Know this. This thing. This is the first thing. This is elementary. All right? If you're talking about, I've got 13 things I need to know. What's first on the list? (laughs) This. This is the first thing he brings to our attention. He says, I want you to know this. And let, let, me, let me define knowing for a minute here. Because there's lots of different ways to say, I know something. Right? You can say, yeah, I know that. And that's common knowledge. You can say, oh, I know, I know, I know. And you're telling somebody, leave me alone. Isn't that about what that means? <laughs> They're saying, oh, you didn't do this. I know, I know, I know, I know. Did you really know? Well, we don't know. But they're convincing you, aren't they, to leave them alone. They know. Sometimes they use it as a shield. I already know. And those kind of things. Here he's saying, this little word is, to know in this way is to assume the character and the appearance of, to come to a particular state or condition of knowing this. This is a lot more than just put it down in a log, 
Put it down in your notebook. Put it down as, my eyes have crossed this page once before. But this is more intense. This is the experiential knowledge that you learn by. You know it because you've seen it. You've known it because you've experienced it. You know it because you know God's Word is true, and you trust that. You have come to a place, you've grown to a place, where you assume this character trait of knowing it. It's not just, I've done this action once, but anytime you assume the character of something, you have practiced it for a while. You see the difference? Some people say, well, I know that because you told me. Other people say, well, I know that because I've been practicing. I know how to do it. That's the kind of knowledge he's talking about here. It's not the simple, you know, theory. It's not the simple uh, trivia kind of knowledge. It is, I've experienced this. I've grown to trust these words. I know them. I know them. I know them. I know what? Well, this, This, based on the information you have received from the apostles and the prophets, this is what you need to know first. It's foundational. It's practical. It's that that applicational side uh, of Scripture. It's what's known by repetition. It's noticed. It's coming true. And I'm going to know it and keep on knowing it. That's the way Peter's writing it. They are coming. They are coming. There's a lot of people who have different views of what's going to happen in the end. There are some who think that things are going to get better and better and better and better and pop, the Lord's here. Kind of like one of those, you know, you're cranking up the box and you're thinking, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And there are some who have thought that over the years. That if we just clean up this world just right, the Lord is going to say, I can't wait to get down there. Let's go. And they, they build their whole theology around the fact that the world's getting better. Have you ever noticed it getting better? Just curiosity here. You know, that was big until World War I. And suddenly it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> and then World War II? That flattened it. And you say, okay, then that's gone. No, it's not. It's back. It's back with a vengeance. It's something that really needed a vaccine to have solved it. Because it's here now. It's being taught. And it's wrapped up, believe it or not, in environmental movements too. Hmm. They think it's just going to get better and better and better. And then the Lord's going to come. Well, you know what? That would put a lot of responsibility on us, the church, would it not? If so, we better get out and clean up the trash, you know, in the, in the ditches and everything else. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to know they will come. The mockers will come. Those who don't think that and they think that everything's going to get better are oblivious to this truth. And guess who's going to get sucked in right away? Those who are not watching. Those who are not expecting. It says they will come. They will Come, not might. The future tense doesn't have a might, by the way. In the, in the Greek language, the future tense is always reality. That's the nature of prophecy. Do you know that? Every time Jesus or the apostles 
or the prophets of the Old Testament, ultimately, every time God said something about the future, it's stated in reality, not in maybes. I love that about the future tense. There's all kinds of different ways you could work with potentials and subjunctives, we call them, and all these other things. And in the Greek, you could say, well, that's a maybe, that's a maybe, that's a maybe. I hate to tell you where all the maybes are. It has to do with our response as Christians to God's Word. I hate that, because <laughs> the maybes always sit in my shoulder. <laughs> and I say, oh, I don't like the maybes. But whenever God talked about the future, He never said maybe. He always used this tense. And this tense never was spoken outside of what we call the indicative mood. The indicative is reality. It's always, always reality. And that's what I love about prophecy. God is not wondering what's going to happen. There's a group out there called Open Theist. Their basic belief is God is just as surprised about tomorrow as you will be. He does not know the future. That things happen to you, God has to figure out how do we solve this one. And he's constantly working as a responder to our problems. I'm not comfortable with that, and I know you're not either. I believe God is sovereign and the initiator. He already knows the end from the beginning, and for that I put my trust in him. He knows tomorrow before tomorrow ever comes. How do I know that? Because he even knows what I'm going to speak before I say it. He knows my thoughts. He knows my future. But read Ephesians chapter 1. Read Ephesians chapter 2. He's already got you seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Your seat's already there. He already sees you there. Because He knows you're going to be there. I love that about our God. He knows the future. And there's no question mark to Him. None. You get that? I hope. That's important, because that's what prophecy is designed to be. Jesus didn't guess what was going to happen. And did he ever talk about the end times? Oh yeah, lots and lots of times he talked about things to come. Paul wrote a lot about the end times. And we gleaned from those passages wonderful things. But Paul wasn't just grasping his straws and hoping for a good outcome. Maybe somehow convince somebody of something new they'd never heard before, and I'm going to make this up and see what happens. That's not Paul's style. God says, tell them this, Paul, this will happen. And that's the way the Lord wrote his prophecy, all the way through, all the way through. And so there comes along the blasphemer, we call him, or the mocker, or whatever scoffer, I think that was the term I heard over here, the scoffer, we start putting these people on the page, and we say, what's wrong with these people? They don't believe it. Because they don't believe God. They don't have their trust in Him. Every time they open their mouth, they deny the truth of God's revelation. They deny it. Mockers will come. Mockers are not fun to have in the room with you. All right? It makes it harder. It makes it harder to, to be confirmed in our conviction when somebody's there next to you mocking it. Isn't that harder to deal with? Nobody likes a mocker. I always thought of the, the mockers. The mockers would come with their mocking. It kind of reminds me of pipers and piping and drummers are drumming and mockers are mocking. Sounds like a 13 verse to a song we know. 
Who wants that for Christmas? Mockers are going to mock. We, uh, years ago, we had this, this cat. We, we called it Spunky. All right. Philip was very little. And this little cat, Spunky, was a kitten. I, it was kind of a strange story, but, uh, our neighbor had a bunch of kittens and, uh, this dog moved into our, well, basically onto our front porch. And it wasn't our dog. We didn't know whose dog it was. And it, it wasn't the best behaved dog. It would eat shoes and things like that. If you left them out, they would, it would eat them. And it happened to kill the neighbor's cat. And we felt really bad about that. And we thought they felt bad about that, too. So we went out and bought a kitten for him and brought it back and handed him the kitten. They said, we don't want your kitten. Guess who got a kitten? We got this new kitten, and we weren't expecting that. And Philip was young, and so we named it Spunky because it had that character. It was a pretty little calico kitten. It loved where we lived. Our little house, it was 600 square feet. That's like a bedroom for some people. But it was just a little bitty house, and it was wooded all the way around the house. This was in Birmingham, south of Birmingham, out in the woods, really, uh, the little bit of hills and things. And, yeah, we had copperheads and things like that out there in the woods, and that's not too fun to, to have around your house. But, nevertheless, it was full of wooded area around us. And Spunky grew up hunting, loved to hunt, go outside and kill things and bring them in and stuff like that. We moved into the city of Birmingham in a very residential area, House right next to the next house and all these other things. And, and we were on the corner block, and so there's a street in front of us, a street beside us. We're sitting there right on the corner, and Spunky was in the worst mood I'd ever seen. Where's my hunting ground? I have nothing else left to live for. You saw that look on her face as she walked around just drooping because she couldn't hunt. And she was really upset. And, and you try to play with her. She didn't want that. She didn't want anything. We found out there's a mockingbird in the neighborhood. Do you know what they like to do to little cats? They are the meanest little birds. They would come down there and peck at her and fly up again. And on top of her misery, this mockingbird was really pointed on heavy. It was every day we saw this mockingbird attacking the cat. And the cat would walk down the street just beside the house, this high off the ground, just dragging her belly with her tail up behind her and her ears folded down and she's just trying to go. The mockingbird, not more than a foot behind, going, nah, 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 and following right behind her, walking down the street. And I thought, boy, that cat's got to be embarrassed on top of it. Just the whole scene was, it was really humiliating to watch this mockingbird mock our cat. That's what it did. Until... The morning I opened the front door and it was laying dead on the front porch. You can only go so far, Bill. And that's it. The mockingbird was done. We had a squirrel that tried that game, too. It'd come down six feet from the telephone pole, wag its tail at the cat, and then run back up. And then the tail was on the front porch the next day. Suddenly, Spunky was a happy little cat. A new hunting ground, but she found a place to live. But every time I see the word mocking, guess what comes into my head? That bird walking a foot behind my cat. Going, rawr, 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 
and making my cat feel like dirt. Mockers do that to us. They shake us on the inside. We don't like it. Nobody likes it. But this is a picture of what Peter says. They're going to come. You're going to hold to your faith, your truth. You have it in Scripture. You believe it. But you're going to be the minority. Do you know we are? Theologically, we're in the minority. To believe that the rapture is going to occur soon, to believe that the tribulation follows that, to believe that the millennial follows that, and then we go and be in the presence of the Lord in the new heaven and new earth. Do you know how many groups really believe that? Very few. The majority of denominations, if they have any eschatology whatsoever, is the basic idea that someday the millennium is just going to come here. And we're going to be in it. And that's the way it's going to work. And they skip the rapture, and many times they skip the tribulation, because they're just looking for that big kingdom experience when everything happens, and suddenly we're there. Some even believe we're in it right now. I'm always surprised by that theory, because I look outside and I don't see the millennium, do you? There's one way to test that. Go play with the first snake you see. If it bites you, you're not in the millennium, okay? That's how simple this works. But they believe this, and we are honestly in the minority. To hold to a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual interpretation of Scripture, to hold to the fact that this is the pre-millennial, pre-tribulational viewpoint of what God is going to do, to believe in a rapture, Put you in the minority. And you will be mocked for it. Because we are. We are mocked all the time. We're, we're pursuing uh, the truth and they're pursuing their mocking. They're coming. And I think they're here now. But their character just kind of sticks out here, doesn't it? Mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust, it says. Now that's reminiscent of all the passages we've ever been seeing, but I just wanted you to know, these are still chapter 2 kind of guys. <laughs> We're not on to a new group here. What you read about in chapter 2 is still the nature of those who are coming. We thought we could be past them in chapter 2, but the only thing is that these are the same guys who will still be there, and they're going to mock they're going to mock. In Philip's translation, they said men who only get, whose only guide in life is what they want for themselves. Going where their passions lead, one said. Behaving in line with their own lust, another said. Governed by their own passions. Ruled by their evil desires. Guess who they promote? Themselves? And guess who they demote? Everybody else. Especially the targets who believe God is true. They're mocking. They're going to mock. They continue to mock. It just goes on and on. But you know that's a contrast to what you're called to do. It's a contrast. What are we supposed to do about other people according to Philippians 2? Do you know? Maybe you don't. 
Is that the next series? We humble ourselves, but what do we think about other people? Did I hear it? Who gets more attention, me or them? Think of others more highly than yourself, right? Philippians 2, you go through that. That's not what a mocker does. That's what a Christian does. A mocker doesn't see others as more important than themselves. Who's going to adjust better to the world that we live in right now? A mocker or a Christian? The mocker will. He adjusts better to this world today because this world is like that, isn't it? Stomp them down, stomp them down, stomp them down. Especially Christians. Stomp them down so that we look better. I hate to say this, but who might look better in the church? According to this passage, the mockers. The mockers, because the world and the church are becoming too much alike. I hate to say that. I don't want to say that. But I think it's true. The world and the church is getting to the place where it's not recognizable between one or the other. So many of them are just, churches are taking on the world's theories, the world's ideas, the world's programs, the world's, you know, society kind of movements. They're, they're following for it. They're following after it. And the mockers are going to be comfortable there. And the church is going to be comfortable with the mockers. Does that scare you? Look what it says. They're coming, and they're following after their own lust. Don't be surprised. I, I don't want that to be true, but they're going to be true to their character. And unfortunately, they're going to fit in. And I don't want them to fit in here, do you? <laughs> uh-uh. But they're going to come, and they're going to say something. Let me just give you a preview of this, and then we'll come back next week to finish this up. But what are they saying? Not casually saying, not occasionally saying, but regularly saying, all the time saying, constantly saying, where is the promise of His coming? Say that with a mocking voice, please. They're not asking for something good for them to understand. They're not asking for the knowledge you're asking for. They want to mock you. Where is the promise of his I thought you said he was coming. It's not true, is what they say. The, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Could you imagine them saying that to Noah for 120 years? As he's building a boat? They're up, rain. You said rain? What's rain? Where's the rain? Don't see any rain. What are you talking about rain? Never heard of it. Every day? Can you imagine that? On and on and on and on. Their strategy is to wear you down. That's what mockers do. They wear you down. They make it seem like you can't answer that question. You don't have an answer for that question. When? Where? When? How many people want to know the date? You want a date? I'll give you a date. Won't do you any good. But people say, tell me the date. How many people have written books that tell you the date? How many of those are still out there in the press? That one in 1988, I love that one. That one was my favorite. 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Coming in 1988. Sold well. Didn't work. (laughs) 
And they always said, I said they needed the sequel. 89 reasons why the Lord would come in 89. And guess what the last reason was? Because he didn't come in 88. You can keep going with that sequel for a long time. Just add another year to it. They're going to say, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And it can wear you down. And in case you wonder about that, let's ask Lot. Living in Sodom and Gomorrah, the sins around him wore him down. We're going to talk about that. What I want to do for you right now, because I can't finish all my notes, I've got lots of them, and you're going to go home eventually. What am I going to call you to do? When you read these things, believe them. Believe them. Read them because God said so. Read the passage here in Second Peter 3. You've got a week. Read through it and say, yes, it will happen. It will happen. It will happen. It will happen. You can say that after every single verse. It will happen. It will happen. It will happen. I want it concreted in our heart, if I can, to convince us that when the mockers start mocking, we know. And that's what he says. This, first of all, I want you to know. That comes from repeating, 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 repeating. Because their mocking doesn't stop. That doesn't mean we shouldn't keep repeating the truth. You see the difference? They will give you the lie, and the lie, and the lie. And the world is good at that. And I think it's good for us to counter with the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth. So, Take some time, if you will, this week, Second Peter chapter 3. Just walk through it and keep saying, it will, it will happen, it will happen. God said so, God said so, God said so. And be encouraged by the passage, because it's good to know that we have a God who's in control of things yet to come. That's what I like about this passage. So we're going to work on it more. There's a lot more to do with it. So we're going to do that next Sunday night. All right? Okay. Time is up. No questions. Got to pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful. So thankful for the truth. So thankful that you have given us the opportunity to see it with our own eyes, to read it, to believe it, to be in a fellowship like this where we can believe together and find that encouragement that we needed. As we heard so many times here tonight, at the end of a great prophetic passage, it says, now encourage one another. Encourage one another. And I feel that we've been encouraging tonight, even though we know the end times is not a pretty picture. It's good to know that you're in control. And it's good to know these words are true. And thank you, Lord, for giving us another cause to trust you. We need that today, and we need it for this week. So I pray that you draw us to your word. Help us to build that confidence in it, that these things are true and to live by them. And I just pray, Lord, that you bless this week. Give safety and give encouragement and give uh, strength and lift us up to make us more like Christ. By next week, may we look a little bit more like him. And I thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.